0: that's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BGW void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the new Books Network.
2: Hi, I'm Howard Burton, host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to present the following Pandemic Perspectives podcast, one of a special series of 24 podcasts that, together with our Pandemic Perspectives documentary and my book Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, make up our comprehensive Pandemic Perspectives project, looking at the COVID-19 crisis from a spectrum of different angles. Today's Pandemic Perspectives podcast features Alexander Quintanilla, current member of Portuguese parliament and former director of the Institute of Molecular and Cell Biology at the University of Porto, whose revealing account of how the government of Portugal successfully communicated vital information to its citizenry during the COVID-19 pandemic, demonstrated one of the few tangible points of light in an otherwise sea of political ineptitude. You might think that, given all of that, Portugal would now be internationally recognized as having vital lessons to teach all of us about how modern politics should be done. Well, it should be. The lessons are most certainly there. But if you don't take the trouble to get out of your own parochial bubble to look at them, you're naturally not going to learn very much. I'm curious. In most countries, a surprisingly large number of countries, even the Netherlands, where my wife is from, there is this distinction between people from the North and people from the South. And the common idiom, although there are obvious exceptions, is that People from the north look at people from the south as Bohemian, as as slightly indolent, as lazy. party-going, this this lazy, this 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 sort of thing. Yeah. And people from the the south look at people from the north as uptight, and they don't have uh, the proper sense of values and, and 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 this sort of thing. Do you have the same sort of yes. thing happening in, in Portugal? Yes. And yes. how does that fit into the national fabric as well? Because Lisbon, as a capital, is Quite far south. I mean, at least geographically, perhaps not culturally. So, how does that all? How does that all work there?
3: Well, I think it's very similar in Portugal. The idea, and it has historical roots um, uh, to it. The south of Portugal, well, all of Portugal was occupied uh, for many centuries by Moors um, that came from North Africa, and so. Uh, the Portuguese language has a lot of words that start with a l um which is the in in uh, in 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 Arabic but then, as the Moors were being pushed out of the peninsula um they started in the north uh being pushed out and it took uh several centuries until uh, they were finally moved out of Portugal. They were moved out sooner than from Spain, and they remain in Andalusia uh, for much longer until, I think they remain in Andalusia until almost the 15th century or something like that. Portugal was a country, a whole country in the early 13th century. So it was, um, it's probably, some people in Portugal claim that Portugal as a country is the oldest country in Europe. With its borders as they are almost today. But the Moorish influence is still seen not only in the architecture, which is very clear, but also in the food, in the songs that people sing, in in the way people live too. Uh, The the houses are constructed in different ways, not just because of the climate, but also because of historical traditions. And there is very much this idea that people in the south are slow, they are indolent, they, they don't work very hard, uh, and that people in the north are the hard-working people. And they used to be, the cities, Porto and Lisbon, used to be characterized by Porto is where people work, Lisbon is where they spend the money. So uh, this idea that most of the industry that existed in Portugal was in the north the South was mainly remained for a long time mainly agricultural, and Lisbon as the capital um, was the place where the taxes went to and uh, and people spend the money. That's very much still the case here. Religiously, I don't think there's you know the the country. Everybody around the world thinks that Portugal is very Catholic. Of course, culturally it's Catholic, like many of the Jews in New York are Jewish culturally, but they are not. They don't go to synagogue, they don't have their children bar mitzvahed or anything like that. So in Portugal, there's still culturally, Catholicism is fairly strong, but it's culturally, it's not religious. There are many, many children now that are born out of wedlock, very large numbers of people that are are having children and don't bother to get married because they don't think it's important. And there are very large numbers of people that are not baptized, um, of children that are not baptized. And Portugal, you know, we didn't have much of a problem 10 years ago to to legislate same-sex marriages, whereas in France there are huge, uh, you know, manifestations in the streets of Paris (laughs) uh, against same-sex marriage and things like that. We have one of the most advanced laws in terms of drug policies in Portugal, you know, abortion has been legal in Portugal for a number of years. It's changed a great deal in the last 20 or 30 years.
2: Just, a, I guess, a parenthetic comment as somebody who's been in France for many years now, it's always important to remember that the French will demonstrate about anything and everything <laughs> on all sides. So, I mean, That's looking true. looking at, at Manif's as a... As a <laughs> <laughs> as a sign of, of particular ways the political winds are going is very dangerous because there's no shortage yeah. of those sorts of things. Yeah. But I, I want to move to your career in politics and yes. ask you a few questions about that. Sure. Because it's, it's a very interesting career or set of careers that you've had. And of course, this plays a significant role in what we're about to talk about with respect to balancing getting a window on the world of politics, the, the distinctions and the commonalities perhaps between the political realm and the scientific realm. This puts you, I think, in a relatively small equivalence class. And I want, I want to ask you, in terms of your political career, how did it start? Was that something that you had long at least imagined or, or countenanced? Did you have to be persuaded? Uh, how did that all begin from... <laughs>
3: Well, it's obviously a question that some people have asked me in the past, and uh, my I've sort of come to an understanding, actually, uh, myself. I think I was always interested in politics. I mean, in South Africa, it was fighting apartheid, and the fact that at the university, at WITS, for instance, it was one of the few universities in South Africa that would invent new degrees every year in order to accept African students, because African students during apartheid could only come to, quote unquote, white universities if those degrees didn't exist in the black university. I see. So WITS was one of the most forward-moving universities, and every year they would create new degrees so that blacks could come. And I was very involved in participating in classes that were organized at night in the townships. We would go to the townships to give classes oh, really? of mathematics. And we were, of course, very closely observed by the secret police. But, you know, we weren't doing anything that was illegal. We were just going there to to teach and to involve kids. And so in Africa, that was uh, one of the areas I was involved in. And there were many of my friends lived in small communes in in Johannesburg. And when I got to the Bay Area, one of the big things, of course, was all the politics around the end of the Vietnam War, which also involved a lot of people. I wasn't very involved in that because it was so towards the end. But then, I don't know if you remember, there was the, um, the era of Equal Rights Amendment, which never passed because we the U.S. didn't get two thirds or three quarters of the states to approve it, and right. I was very involved in the ERA, um, you know, going to meetings, having debates, and so on. Then, when when the gay rights movement started in, in in New York and in San Francisco, and when the mayor was uh, assassinated and Harvey Milk was murdered in the Castro. I was very involved in many of those uh, marches, but it was an involvement as a citizen. Not I was not politically. um, I didn't belong to political parties or anything like that. It was just that these were things that were part of what I believed in needed to be defended. Then in Portugal, my first big involvement in politics was when. Portugal decided to um, make a huge change in drug policy. You know, the idea that people who are drug consumers, instead of being considered criminals, they were considered patients that needed help. I was invited uh, by the uh, deputy prime minister at the time, about 22 years ago, I was called on the phone and he said he was, he was putting together a committee of people to look at the drug policies because the drug policies at the time were not working anywhere. And so uh, Portugal needed to have a new look at the politics of drugs. And I, th- I said, that was a very good idea. And then he said, yeah, and we want you to chair that committee. And so I wow. yeah to chair the committee. So I burst out laughing and I said, you know, I've never worked on drugs. I don't know anything about it. I have a very you know, I have vague positions about it. I don't know anything about it. Huh. And he said, well, that's exactly why we want you to be the chair, <laughs> because we don't want you to come with preconceived ideas. Right? And we have some very good people, experts in the committee, but we want you to be the chair. And I said, okay, let me think about it. And um, I, I thought about it. <laughs> And the next day I called him up and I said, yeah, I think you gave me a very intelligent answer. I think it's a good idea. I'm very curious, very interested. The people in the committee I know are all very, very good people uh, scientifically, both in, in areas of medicine and nursing, and sociology and, and legal aspects. We, you have some very, very outstanding people. I'd be happy to chair this committee. And we worked for about five months very very intensely and we produced a a holistic document that dealt with you know research and prevention and harm reduction and legal aspects and so on which we gave to the government and the government accepted the whole thing without changing a single comma well it became law (laughs) after about a few months and portugal now we had a meeting two years ago in Porto where 125 countries came to find out how it was working. And it's become, I get phone calls, I would say, almost every two weeks or so from journalists around the world who want to find out what happened and how it happened. so that was my first involvement in what I would say, making sure that policies are put into place that are based on the most robust knowledge that exists at that time, whether it's from the social sciences or the biological sciences or the legal aspects of the humanities, what kind of narratives or stories or data that we have uh, should be used to put together a law, which is not perfect. It needs to be perfected. But it was an amazing success, and it gave me some confidence that maybe if I ever went into politics again, I could strive to make sure that policies are developed based on the most up to date knowledge that we have. And so, when I gave my last class, because we have to retire at the age of 70 in Portugal, when I gave my last class six years ago, because of many reasons. I, I'm also, I make sure I want, I like to go to schools and talk with kids a lot. And I started a, a fairly large research institute of molecular biology. When I gave my last class, it was in all the newspapers, you know, sort of um, Quintanilla has given his last lecture. And the head of the opposition party, which is who's now prime minister, the day after my last class uh, called me up and said he wanted to talk to me, and we met, and he said, would you like to run for election to parliament in the next coming elections on my ticket? And I burst out laughing again and said, you know, I've never been in politics. I, am, I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, maybe that's one of the reasons I'm inviting you. So, so I accepted, and I joined, and I've been there for six years. And we've just finished. That was just published, the law on climate, which was done the same way. We invited more than 80 specialists in in various domains about climate and environment, and we produced a law that was just approved by the president of the republic. And it's it's called the climate law for Portugal, which is very ambitious. It tries to move ahead faster than the rest of Europe. The two coal-producing electrical factories that we have have just been closed, so we no longer produce electricity through coal. And about 60% of all the electricity we use at home is renewable at the moment, which is an amazing uh, success, and we want to move even faster in that direction. So that's how I entered politics. <laughs> and in the during the pandemic, I also wrote a couple of articles, you know, about the dilemma of too many people wanting to have their voices heard <laughs> without having all the knowledge. Yeah. And you know, you'd get people from uh, statisticians and epidemiologists and you know uh, lung specialists, and there was a cacophony of, of voices. That didn't help very much. But we now have almost 90% of the population vaccinated. I've already gotten my third vaccine, I've been boosted. And the country has, as we have almost no uh, negativists, you know, people who are against the vaccine, very, very few. They're hardly visible. And of course, we are now suffering from the third Because we loosened up the rules, numbers are going up. But interestingly enough, and thankfully, none of the cases we are getting are serious cases. Very few people are dying. Very few people are in intensive care units. So most of the cases we're getting are mild cases. And now we're going to start vaccinating younger children.
2: So I, I want to pick up on that. But before I do, one thing really stands out. As you're describing your own experiences becoming involved in politics, as well as what seems to be the prevailing, let's just say, cultural attitudes with respect to decision making, at least in the modern era in Portugal, which is, as you rightly say, a respect for knowledge in all of its forms. Yes. The preeminence of, not to put too fine a point on it, actually knowing what one is talking about and being able to seek out intelligently, expert voices and expert guidance in all manner of different areas.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But there, there, there's a second point that you allude to, which I think is perhaps equally important or at least very important, which is the way that you move ahead to, to develop recommendations based upon that knowledge. Mm-hmm. So you, you said on several occasions, that you were singled out as somebody because you were objective, because you weren't an expert in that particular area, because you could presumably be looked upon as someone who could impartially and objectively guide that overall process in the interests of everyone, Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to having things break down and descend into squabbling rivalries of one camp versus another camp and so forth. And so I think that process of how you harness the knowledge is just as important or at least deserves a significant amount of attention Mm -hmm. to that process of recognizing who has the knowledge. It doesn't take very much, in fact, to be able to identify who experts in the room are for any given topic. And the Mm -hmm. room being metaphorical, obviously, Mm -hmm. experts in your country, experts in whatever it is that Mm -hmm. you choose to do. But thinking about, right, we have X, let's just use a different letter. We have Y numbers of experts in, uh, in, in a given field How do we move from there to be able to coherently develop meaningful and impactful and responsible public policy that requires a knowledge of the process of converging upon the right sort of utilization of that knowledge, which is over and above that knowledge itself. It's distinct, it's secondary. So both of those things, I, I think, are certainly worthy of note. Yes, And you highlight that in your response. So you graciously participated in the, the, the film conversation earlier uh, last week, I believe. Mm-hmm. And you talked about something that you alluded to just now, but I'd like to come back to it with respect to the pandemic, because you talked about the importance of public education and dialogue in the Portuguese response to the pandemic. Right now, you, you said that uh, something like 90% of the people are vaccinated, very high vaccination rate. There's a very low percentage of Uh, militant anti-vaxxers and skeptics and so forth and so on. And you attributed this distinction with respect to some other countries, and perhaps we can get there later, but let's not worry about that for the time being. You attributed this, this acceptance and understanding, and perhaps you could even say trust, in the policies that were invoked by the Portuguese government to a very proactive and engaging strategy of education and dialogue with respect to the, the society as a whole. Yes. Has that tradition, how long has that tradition existed for? Because I'm, I'm hearing all these stories from you and I'm thinking these are forward-thinking, reasonable people. You have politicians who are asking objective people who are wise and smart and who clearly don't have a particular political allegiance to join their party. You have somebody who, calls upon somebody who is recognized as a thoughtful, probity-riddled, to mix metaphors, uh, individual to chair a a committee. My goodness, I don't see too much of that happening in many other countries of the world. Now you tell me that the the reason why Portugal has such a, a, a high degree of at least contentment with respect to the emergency policies that have been invoked by the government is because there was a deliberate conscious and effective campaign of education and dialogue with the entire citizenry. How did you guys
3: get so smart? I mean, what? what... <laughs> no, that's a very What's... good question, Howard. Uh, it's a very good question. And I- I'm not sure that this is a, s- a very simple, straightforward answer. But I- let me say, give you a few examples of things that I believe helped uh, moving in that direction. Where can I start? I mean we uh, Portugal, about twenty twenty two years ago was uh, lucky enough to have a minister um, of higher education and science that that was his title who has died recently he, he was a, a very bright man with an amazing vision you know he believed that you not only stimulate research in all domains, he, he was against this idea of thinking that engineering or technology or STEM is more important than the arts or something like that. He believed that you ought to fund all domains of knowledge, uh, starting from the fine arts, going all the way to the most advanced engineering and, and medical, and but also philosophy and history and so on. But at the same time. He also believed that it was fundamental to have uh, society in general become more and more aware of the work that was being done in research institutes and in universities and so on. So he started a program that is called Ciencia Viva, which means live science. It was made up of many different parts. Uh, Let me tell you a few of them. First of all, creating, starting to create science centers around the country, but science centers that would uh, base the, the area in which they would become well known for in things that were happening in that context. Like, for instance, if it was in an area where a lot of marble was being extracted for construction, you would have a science center on uh, on geology, for instance. Right. If it was in the Azores, where a lot of stuff was happening with the ocean, it would be a science center on the ocean. If it was somewhere where, um, you know, history was an important component of research, it would be a science center focused around the history, uh, whatever it is. So this was one component. And we now have, I don't know, something like, Dozens of science centers all over the country started 22 years ago. But the other thing he did was that he made sure that every research institute in the country that received funds from the government would have to spend 3% of their funding, global funding, on uh, what he calls dealing with society. In other words, 3% 3% of the budget would have to be for people coming to visit the Institute, for programs during the holidays, right. for kids and teachers in high schools to spend time in this place, for to have uh, scientific journalism inside the institution so that the institutions could start to provide little stories that they would put in newspapers and so on about interesting discoveries and in the work that was being done in the press. He also gave scholarships many scholarships for uh, school teachers who wanted to spend a month or so during their vacation time when they didn't have less work at research institutes in areas that they would choose to come and learn to what was happening and so on and he created a number of science museums which were very popular with families that took their kids to visit on weekends or so on and i was one of the most avid supporters of this strategy. And let me tell you, at the time, many, if not all, not all because I was not one of them, but a very large percentage of senior scientists were very much against this. They thought spending 3% of the budget, science budget on... explaining what people were doing uh, in in the research centers, why they were getting funding from the government. They didn't understand that the public in general would not support more research if they didn't know why they were doing the research and how important it was and what the implications were. And it took many years for many of the senior scientists, and now many of them are very much in favor of it, (laughs) I had huge discussions with senior scientists in my institution who, who thought it was a complete waste of money. You know, 3% of the budget on, on, on making sure that the general public is aware of what, what we do in, in our center was not accepted at the time. So I think this, um, if you look at the latest Eurobarometer that came out of the European Commission you will find something extremely interesting and that Portugal is number one of all the countries in Europe in terms of believing that science information is very important for the way societies evolve. This is extraordinary. This happened in 22 years. So it it, it means two things. First of all, that it's possible, that it doesn't take that long. And that you can create a, in one generation, you can create a a society that is sensitive and is, is receptive to the ideas that knowledge as such is fundamental for the choices you make of your own life and the choices you make for, for how the country should evolve. I think that's one, a, a very interesting result of of that. Um, and of course, Portugal is a small country, so it's like a little laboratory. You know, We can do these things. And it's, a number of other countries are now trying to imitate some of these effects. But um, if you have a chance to look at the, Euro, the one of the latest Eurobarometers that came out of, of the European Commission, Portugal uh, stands very, very high in terms of the relevance of knowledge to uh, policies that are, that are developed. And I think that also there was an effort to educate journalists. You know, there were, there were funds to make sure that journalists could spend time in research institutes and write stories about research, because the media are fundamental. You know, the media determines how people think. You know, the media can be extremely useful and extremely dangerous because they reach so many people so fast. And so Portugal was able to do this because there was a concerted effort to make sure that these areas were not worlds apart. They needed to talk to each other. They needed to listen to each other. And scientists needed to learn. Also, it was a learning experience. Scientists needed to learn that sometimes journalists when they try to explain something, they may perhaps oversimplify the story, which frustrates some of the scientists. You know, She didn't say exactly what I said, but sometimes that's the only way you can use so that people are curious in the story you're telling. So it was a learning experience for everybody.
1: slash NBN50 to get 50% off?
2: Well, there are lots of things to talk about here. Let me just give a meta comment before I launch in with some of my responses. Sure. So my meta comment is that I was thinking about going in a different direction with this conversation, and I was thinking about asking all sorts of questions about why, for example, the European Union can't seem to get their act together, mm-hmm. or why everybody is, uh, or at least large portions of the population are seemingly completely irrational in the United States. But I, I, I'd, really rather, I'd really rather move in a positive direction because you've given all sorts of optimistic and, and positive food for thought in terms of how we might be able to move more coherently in the interests of everyone. And, and so that's my meta comment. As I try to narrow things down towards more concrete issues, Let me first give a comment about education, which sprung to my mind when you were talking. I think sometimes it's almost like a nomenclature issue, a lexical issue, when people use words like education because the connotations that are very often associated with education is something that is unpleasant, needs to be done, one has to go to school, one has to learn things. It's the job of educators to be drilling facts into people's heads and so forth and so on. And and as anybody who has any scientific orientation, or in fact, any scholarly or research orientation knows, perhaps the most important thing is curiosity, is excitement, is, is self-motivation. When you talked about educating journalists, the thing that came into my mind is... You hear this a lot, you hear, you know, the media is terrible, they simplify things, they're they're stupid, they have a political agenda, you hear all sorts of things coming from the scientific community, some more credible than others, but rarely is it put in such a way that there are so many fascinating and interesting things, and it's more of a way of engaging with these people, people who are in the business of telling stories, such as journalists, such as people in the media, they often aren't aware of the extent of interesting stories that are out there, the extent of really fascinating topics and ideas, both to communicate to the public at large and for themselves. And I think when you start having much more of an engagement motif behind your your initiatives, you're already on a very, very different path. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was going to say is that I have in a previous life some academic administrative experience. So the fact that many scientists were reluctant to take a 3% allocation in the overall budget to public policy initiatives, the fact that they were hugely opposed to that, or many were hugely opposed to that, is not in itself surprising. But it is gratifying, as you say, that through some very concrete Applicable measures, you could see such remarkable results in terms of engagement of the citizenry, in terms of engagement of the media, in terms of engagement of those scientists, in terms of what happens, what ripples all the way down. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to take a comment that you made and, and spit it on its head and ask for your, your views on that. So, the comment that you made was Portugal is a small country. So, it, the implication is that it's a, you could do it, it's a test case, it's a test particle, as, as we physicists might say. And, and so you can at least have a proof of principle, a proof of uh, possibility. And so my question is, well, might you be able, because I, you know, I have this glass half full propensity every now and then, might you look at that in a more defeatist way and say something like, well, okay, you can do that in a place like Portugal. You can do that maybe in a place like Singapore. You can do that in a, in a small area where uh, a small, relatively small population with a relatively homogeneous citizenry that you can convince as to the merits of this, this policy or that policy. But surely in a large, diverse, heterogeneous country like the United States of America, for example, or, or even if you look at the European Union with all these different countries and languages and traditions and, and orientation, it's much more difficult to imagine doing something like that. So how would you respond to that uh, <laughs> criticism or potential, yeah. potential criticism?
3: Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not easy. Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure I know exactly um, you know, whether I have a single answer to that or a comment. I, I believe that also what happened in Portugal, the historical context of Portugal, is also very important to what happened you know we as i've mentioned already probably two or three times we 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 had 300 years of inquisition you know starting in the 16th century and going all the way up to the 19th century and then we had a lot of uh, instability for many years while the monarchy fell and the republic got into place and then we had a dictatorship for 50 years and and so when the when 1974 um, arrived and we had we got rid of the dictator and we had this uh, quote unquote revolution that tried to introduce democracy again into Portugal, I think a lot of people looked at it as a an opportunity for renewal, an opportunity to look at everything that we we were left out of and that we needed to recover very quickly. And we needed to build a true a true democracy uh, as quickly as possible. And I, I sometimes say, uh, I'm not sure I've said that to you before, but I think in Portugal, one of the interesting things that have happened is that men gained political freedom from the revolution. Women gained political freedom and all the other freedoms they didn't have. So it was much more important for women than it was for men, and you see that you have women in Portugal are you know we have more doctorates uh, now that are women than than men. Their commitment to a new world in which they don't feel that the most important thing in their life is reproduction and, and taking care of their husbands or whatever it is, where they have the freedom to explore the liberties that we're given access to them, is being taken on very seriously. And so a lot of this historical context, which is I've now gained a freedom that I'm not willing to relinquish and I want to use it as full as possible, is very much present in many of the young generations in Portugal. And it's being encouraged also by by teachers. Some of the more conservative families are a little worried <laughs> that uh, you know this will this will lead to less and less uh, children being made because these these women want to have other uh, and this you can see this uh, happening but I think it's a small minority I think people are yeah. dressing themselves with this new freedom and going to schools and you talking to young kids I'm always uh, fascinated by some of the amazing questions that they ask. Schools here, some of, the, some of the schools, not private schools, public schools, in which university professors take it upon themselves to go to that school and arrange their labs. For instance, in Porto, the, uh, I know a chemistry professor at the university who's decided in one of the most, one of the schools in one of the most poorest areas of Porto, has fantastic chemistry labs because he decided to go there. And, and get the chemistry labs to work and the kids. And for many of these kids who come from very poor families, the school is a refuge. They want to stay at school. They want to be in the labs because going home in some cases is they, they have to suffer uh, violence in the family or whatever it is. I'm, I'm diverging a little bit from your question, but I think the historical context of Portugal also has made... This, uh, mod- this change, this cultural change possible. I think what is now happening, which is a little disturbing, and I'm not sure how it's going to evolve, is that because so many more people are getting to university, so many more people, as I told you, now there's 40 or 50 percent of 20-year-olds in Portugal are at university. This is something extraordinary uh, for Portugal. You know, when I went to university, I was a small minority of people went to university. I don't know, 2%? Now it's 50% of the, of the kids. Yeah. Now the problem is that many of them are, are realizing that just having a degree doesn't guarantee them a job. But this is the same all over the world. Sure. Uh, but this is going to create the next uh, problems that are occurring. Sure. Well,
2: you're you're a politician now, and so you have all this responsibility for the health and welfare of your country in all sorts of different directions. Yeah. So, uh, but I'm I'm going to cut you off. Sure. And say two things. The first thing is just a reinforcement of what you were just mentioning about gender attitudes, or maybe that's not even the right way to put it. But but the the sense of empowerment of, yes. of women.
0: Yes.
2: From a completely different direction, something I hadn't expected years ago. I had a conversation with Ian Stewart, who is, as you probably know, he's a well-respected mathematician and he's also a best-selling author. He's written many, many, many books about uh, the history of mathematics and and so forth and so on. He's also written science fiction works. Anyway, so he's had a long and productive career at the University of Warwick and the vast majority of his graduate students were Portuguese women. Mm And I asked him about that, and I said, what's, what's going on with, with this? And he said, well, it's, it was just remarkable to me. The first individual came, she came by happenstance, and then I was somehow in this network, and somehow there was this sense that the attitudes, not just the educational standards, but the attitudes, the self-belief, the curiosity, the interest was so statistically significant in Portugal, particularly with respect to the women. I think he also had some male students, but the majority were women. And he was perplexed. There was a sense of something wonderful is going on in this place. I have no idea really why. Mm -hmm. So that's just a data point out of nowhere that, uh, that I have heard quite independently, that there really is something noteworthy and statistically significant, not just in terms of doctorates in higher education for women, but also in the mathematical sciences, which mm-hmm. tends not to be Absolutely. nearly as, as, uh, mm-hmm. as equal in terms of gender parity and so forth in and, and many other places. So that was surprising to me. I, I grew up in Canada and Canada has positives and negatives like every place, but there is there is a sense that Canadians have that the world would be somehow better off if if people were like them. I, I suppose every every nationality has that sense. And there there was a there's a there's a bookstore. I remember a chain in Canada. There were these slogans that were put on the on the walls of the bookstore. The world needs more Canada. And I remember thinking to myself, well that's a that's a debatable point. Perhaps it does. Perhaps it doesn't. There was no justification for that claim. It was just a vert. And, and when I pointed this out to people, my fellow Canadians, as you might imagine, this was not met with resounding sentiments of endorsement. But I, I think there is an objective argument that, that the world does need more Portugal, or at least needs to look at what is happening in Portugal and recognize it
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, with respect to these particular areas. So much talk, so many conferences, so much often hot air is associated with people talking about STEM and they're talking about how can we communicate science and they're talking about gender roles and they're talking about this and they're well-meaning people and they they have lots of insights and I'm not denigrating them at all. Mm-hmm. But surely if you are interested in really making change, the obvious thing to do is look at a couple of places on planet earth where they really are doing things differently mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and ask yourself, what the heck are they doing over there? Mm-hmm. So that's my, my strong rousing endorsement uh, of, of what you're saying. Not that you <laughs> <laughs> who know infinitely more about this than I do need my endorsement, but anyway, it's an objective data point. But now I'm getting back to my second point, which is, okay, that's wonderful and it's nice to be able to look and to be able to uh, recognize and appreciate the distinction. But what do I do if I'm, uh, I'm surely the prescription is not, well, yes, this is a good thing to be doing, but you have to be a relatively small country which has had 300 years of oppression and then a dictatorship and uh, uh, you know all the rest of that. We're certainly not using that as a prescription mm-hmm. for other places uh, that, have, uh, that have managed to avoid having the, uh, the Inquisition for 300 years and then followed by a dictatorship. So how can we short circuit that? How, how can we reasonably, realistically apply the lessons and, and the conclusions, the positive conclusions that have been adopted in many different ways by, by citizens of your country to other places where there's obviously such an overwhelming need? I mean, look, so I'm ranting a little bit. Apologies for that. I'm going to turn it over to you very really shortly, but it's a real issue, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're sitting here having this conversation in December of 2021. It looks like the United States of America has been sliding progressively into greater and greater dysfunctionality, greater and greater irrationality. So we can sit back and we can say, oh, that's you know, that's a problem, or what comes around goes around, or something like that. But it's a disaster Mm -hmm. for planet Earth that Mm -hmm. this is what's happening. It's a disaster in all sorts of places. The other day I turned on the television and and there were these militant violent protests about vaccines in Austria and in other places. I mean it's not it's not limited to the United States of America. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: There are massive amounts of demagoguery and populism. That are as diametrically opposed to the notion of the pursuit of truth or well-balanced, sober, educated views of trying to solve problems in a reasonable way that are complex. Mm -hmm. So we, all of us, we need desperately and quickly to be able to learn from positive examples in order to uh, move our countries in 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 a more... I don't want to use the word progressive because that's been hijacked by, by one side sure. of the political spectrum, but, but in, a, in a more coherent and efficacious way to the benefit of all, you guys are doing something. God knows how you got there, but somehow you got there in such a way that there are lessons that you can teach us and presumably other places can too. How can people really harness that and benefit from that?
3: Yeah. Uh, not an easy question. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I, I have the answer. I, I, I don't, You mentioned something that I I think I need to 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 address as well, and that is I tried to give an explanation for why this happened in Portugal, but I don't think that we've we had to have this history for this to occur. Right. I think with this history, it may have made the need for clarity and the need for knowledge more acute. You know, people that were not being given. The opportunity to learn and to and to become, because it's not just you know. I sometimes make the point that um, everybody now is talking about data. You know, data is very important. Data is the the future, and, and so on. And I always say, well, data needs to be organized before it becomes information, right. and information has to be organized before it becomes knowledge, right. and knowledge needs to be organized before it becomes wisdom. And it takes a very long time. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen from one year to the next. It takes a very long time.
2: And it doesn't happen spontaneously either.
3: That's right. Yeah. And it takes, it takes two ingredients, which I think are, uh, which are part of the way in all fields of knowledge uh, grow. And that is curiosity, which you've already mentioned, which is very important. Ask questions. Ask new questions but also requires imagination. You need to think of ways of answering those questions. And some of those answers are stupid, and that's fine. And you need to be able to test those. You you either call the answers, you know, hypotheses, if you are a physicist or a biologist or something. If you're a social scientist, you call them narratives. And there are lots of narratives. You know, there's structuralism, there's communism, there's uh, um, neoliberalism. There's all these isms that you have. If you're in the humanities, they call stories. You know, all of us have a number of books that made made us changed our lives. I have half a dozen books that changed me because of the way uh, those characters in those novels related to the world and related to each other. And I think more and more we are realizing that it's through curiosity and imagination in terms of encouraging people to think of. Different. I mean, it's called innovation. It's, now everybody talks about innovation. Well, Innovation is just imagination working. And you need to think of different stories, different narratives, different hypotheses, and so on. And then you need time. You need time to test these. And some are easier to test. You know, it's easy to test that a, a metal wire that conducts electricity produces a magnetic field around it. That's easy uh, to demonstrate. How certain social investments are going to end up in a better society is much more difficult to predict. Yeah. My feeling is that you, we probably there are probably ne- a number of experiments around the world that we don't know anything about yeah. because they haven't been given the visibility that they should. Because yeah. this is not news. Most of the news these days. Are things that go wrong. You know, it's either the hurricanes in in Kentucky or the Iran nuclear program or most of the news. And I think this is a very dangerous development. There was there was something I read a few years ago that said that ninety four percent of everything that Americans read or uh, heard or viewed. 94% was controlled by six large companies. You know, the, the um, big, big companies that, that had, uh, you know, military interests or pharmacological interests or agricultural interests. So when the media are completely dominated by a very small, these monopolies that take over, um, it, it doesn't help. I suspect that in fact there are Even outside of Portugal, (laughs) a number of interesting experiments that need to be um, exploited and need to be given visibility that would make this possible. I also think, and I, I, uh, let me just add this because I thought about it a little while ago. I also feel that it's very important for people to recognize that politics doesn't have the luxury of time because when you have something that is a, a huge, change that occurs in a country. You need to act. You cannot wait and say, I'm going to wait to have enough information. So what you need to also make sure that people understand that some policies, by the mere fact that they were taken without enough knowledge, may have to be reversed. In other words, politics requires people to understand that sometimes a decision needs to be reversed uh, when you have more knowledge about whatever happens. And many people don't understand that also. So this is also a part of learning uh, that people have to develop. And you learn this by being exposed to actual processes, you know, and in Portugal, I think I mentioned that when we were when you were filming one of the things that also was very helpful was to have every week an open to the media an open debate where you had parliamentarians, you had the government, and you had the president of the Republic, plus many specialists telling people what were the latest news about the pandemic and what we thought needed to be done yeah. and If you do this consistently, this also helps to build trust uh, in the system, you you are being exposed to the difficulties that people have in making decisions when you don't have enough information. So I think that these are the little examples that I think need to be made visible, need to be known if we feel we're going to make an impact that is worthwhile.
2: I hope you enjoyed this Pandemic Perspectives podcast. Once again, our Pandemic Perspectives documentary, released in early March 2022, is available for rent or purchase through the Ideas Roadshow app. While the accompanying book, Pandemic Perspectives: A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, is available in print and ebook through all major book distributors and an audiobook on the Ideas Roadshow app. See ideasroadshow.com for more details.